This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Erica Anderson, and today I'm speaking with Carrie Sheffield. She is the founder of Bold Media, a digital news network committed to bipartisan dialogue and innovation for people, communities, and business. I love what Bold is doing. They are transforming our digitally native generation to build a more perfect union. And in fact, Carrie told me they love to base their vision on Dr. Martin Luther King's popular notion of the beloved community. Dr. Martin Luther King envisioned a community, a society based on justice, equality, opportunity, and love of one's fellow human beings. And what Bold aims to do is bring people together to have conversations that matter about issues that are important, but no voice is silenced and every voice is welcomed. I love what they're doing on Bold, and I also loved just hearing about Carrie's journey as a journalist and a public policy expert in Washington, D.C. She's done a lot with her life and overcame a pretty tough childhood to get there. I think you're going to learn a lot from the wisdom that Carrie delivers in this episode, so enjoy today's conversation with your time. All right, everyone. I'm here talking today with Carrie Sheffield. Carrie, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you, Erica. Great to be here. Well, Carrie, you have a pretty impressive background. I'm going to list off a couple things before we get started. You have a master's degree in public policy from Harvard. You have a background as an analyst at Goldman Sachs. You were a founding reporter at Politico, something I learned as I was doing my research. Very cool. Um, You've also spoken in front of the United States Senate, and your writing has been published in everywhere from the Wall Street Journal to Time to USA Today, the New York Times, Washington Post, and I saw you had an article just recently on CNN.com. And most importantly right now, you are the founder of Bold Media, which is a thriving media organization. Uh, Can you tell me a bit about... How did you find this pathway toward media? Like you started, you know, you got your master's in public policy and then you made your way to D.C. Um, What made you so interested in the media world and and becoming part of that and mixing it with politics and policy? Yeah, well, thanks, Erica. And and yes, um, Bold is, is my baby and it's really melding my two career paths of policy politics with my background in finance. Uh, and so to, to create a startup, it was really the marriage of those two pathways. Uh, and so it's been challenging, but it's been exciting, rewarding. Uh, it's, it's, it's tapped into everything, you know, body, mind, spirit, every aspect of who I am in my past uh, to build this startup. Um, and I first started in my very first exposure uh, in my own voice as a journalist was when I was 17 years old. And I was going to high school down in Southwest Missouri in the Ozarks, the Ozarks region, the Ozarks Mountains, very beautiful. If your listeners haven't been, I recommend it. Uh, It's where Branson is. Branson is a big tourist draw for people who love country music. And uh, was going to high school down in that area. We uh, had a regular feature called the Young Voices Column. And they allowed local high school students and young people to write in uh, about their thoughts on matters. And there had been this progressive 
young woman, I believe she was a freshman in college who had grown up from the area and she had gone away to college. I want to say somewhere on the East coast, but she'd written this column, uh, basically scaremongering about environmental issues. Um, and actually that, that was my second one. I should say my first one was related to, um, my high school. What I was on the cross country team and I had done a lot of running and my high school decided that they wanted to put vending machines in the school. And I was incensed about that because they had given a $10 million contract to this vending machine company, in my opinion, to basically allow the schools uh, to uh, inject all kinds of sugar and junk food into um, the children's, you know, I was a high school senior, so I was technically still a child, but uh, (laughs) just giving us a bunch of junk food and not giving us healthy options. And as someone who ran cross country and I had done a couple other sports, I was really upset because... I, I never felt like there were healthy options at the cafeteria. And I, I wrote a column about that and how I felt like it was basically auctioning away our health in the name of raising money. Um, and so that was my first column. And I, I uh, received some very positive responses, especially from people who uh, a couple of people had said, you know, as, as a, as a young woman, you need to make sure that you develop your voice. Like do not let this uh, voice go away. And, and then my, my other column that I was just mentioning <laughs> Uh, was in response to someone who had wrote, written a, a piece about environmental uh, scaring. Uh, and I went systematically and addressed all her points and, and spoke about how she was uh, really, um, in some ways, harking back to the same sort of fear-mongering that was happening earlier in, in the 70s, talking about global cooling. And so if it's it's all about global warming at that point, but before it was global cooling, and just a lot of, a lot of fear-mongering and not a lot of facts. Um, uh, but anyway, that was my, my first column ran when I was 17 and I just, I really, um, continued, uh, my interest and, and I could see that the power of words was enormous, that you can help shape the debate. Uh, and so I chose to study journalism in my undergrad, uh, at Brigham Young University and I graduated and that's when I moved to Washington and worked as a reporter for the Hill, Politico, you mentioned, I was an editorial writer for the Washington Times. Uh, and then I went to uh, Harvard for my master's and then went to finance and did that for several years, working in finance at Goldman Sachs and at Moody's. And then uh, a little bit after that, that's when I took the plunge and started bold. So what made you want to do journalism in in more of a political environment? Because, of course, there's all kinds of journalism, but you went straight to the belly of the beast in Washington, D.C. The swamp. I went right into the swamp. The swamp. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I think for politics, I had grown up. So my grandfather had been the, it was before I was born, but, uh, he had been the Republican whip in the Utah legislature. And it's actually in his obituary that he wrote the legislation that allowed you to turn right at a red light in Utah. So if you're ever in Utah and you turn right at a red light, you can thank my grandpa Sheffield. (laughs) Um, so uh, so I really grew up, uh, uh, my immediate family and extended family ha- always had a keen interest in politics. And we were always taught that that's part of how you give back um, and that the community uh, is, is only as strong as the weakest link. Um, and, and also to fight back for people who are vulnerable because that's what America's always been about is, is the, the power and the beauty of the individual. And so for me, politics was really just a way to channel uh, what I had grown up being taught and what I had learned. And um, the beauty of being able to grapple with ideas uh, is something that I just find intellectually stimulating. And I guess I'm also maybe slightly masochistic that I, I enjoy um, political debates. So that's how it started. 
Yeah, and you've gone from one very impressive venture to another. And I know you've talked a little bit, not too much, but a little publicly about having grown up and having a bit of a tough childhood. Um, can you talk about how overcoming hardship in that way maybe gave you some of the grit and tenacity that it takes to overcome and to actually be a successful professional woman who's really living out her dreams? Yeah, well, and in fact, this is a teaser for the Independent Women's Forum summer uh, seminar that's going to be happening in Dallas, the conference. I am going to yes. speak more about some of these challenges. The Champion um, Women's Summit. Yes, exactly. Independent Women's Forum voice. Yes. Uh, and uh, so the uh, so I will talk about it more there in terms of uh, some of the challenges. But yeah, so my, my father um, is a very unique person individual and he, uh, he has a uh, mental illness. And so because of that, we had a very unstable childhood growing up and we had poverty. Um, we were on welfare at one point, my brother was born in a tent. We lived in trailer parks and sheds and tents. Um, just not, a, not a lot of stability, especially when I was younger. Um, I eventually went to 17, one, seven public schools and homeschool. Um, all before I graduated high school. So I was always used to being the outsider and very much always used to being the new kid and uh, not having roots, really not being from anywhere. Um, and I think that that shaped me in terms of my ability to be a journalist, because that's what you're doing every day. You're airdropping in and you have to assess and uh, synthesize a lot of information very quickly in order to, I mean, it's, it's like sociology. You have to really understand your environment pretty quickly. And I think that definitely shaped my career path. Um, I think also to the point on the challenges that you asked, um, you know, it's, it's tough to, to grow up in a, in a family that, uh, you know, has mental illness and, and abuse and, uh, poverty and, uh, just very transitory. And so it, it definitely shaped, uh, how I viewed myself. And I think that that's something that in general, we as women, we struggle with issues of self-esteem or feeling like we're not adequate. And so for me, compound those basic uh, doubts or questions with all this other chaos. Um, I really struggled with a lot of issues around self-esteem and um, questioning my abilities or questioning my, my uh, purpose in life. And I think that it took a lot therapy took some therapy so I definitely endorse therapy <laughs> um you know I think getting the right medical attention definitely uh is is useful and needed for people who are going through traumatic situations uh, I was diagnosed with uh depression and PTSD when I was in college uh just from some of the stresses I'd gone through um and to go through those uh stressors and come out on the other side. It, I do believe that phrase that whenever it doesn't kill you, make you stronger. Uh, certainly yeah. applies in my case. And so, to have the mental health care that I needed, uh, to have the the family supports, I was able to get some strong family support in my extended family from aunts and uncles, cousins, uh, my grandmother who was alive uh, when I was in college uh, and for a few years after. Um, so having some family support and then having. Uh, really, uh, I would say overall, I know Arthur Brooks, who is about to leave AEI and go up to my alma mater, the Kennedy School, he talks about the four the four components of whether someone remains trapped in poverty or is able to escape. Mm -hmm. And those components um, he talks about are faith, family, community, and work. And when I look back on my life, I see that each of those four strands 
were present in order to get me through on the other side. Yeah, I love that. And I actually, I have his book uh, sitting by my bed right now and I need to start reading it. And I, I love Arthur books. He, he is such a great, he actually is a great kind of like symbolism of what you're doing with bold because he's very into, um, you know, having those really important discussions and conversations and, and talking across the aisle and things like that. But I did want to ask you, um, about how has your faith played into, um, kind of overcoming some of your past? I know you, um, you find faith important. Has that been helpful in, um, finding some closure or finding some healing from the past? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I've said publicly in, in another interview about, you know, Bolt, Bolt is a secular police, so I never want anyone to feel like they need to believe certain things or be in any certain denominations in order to work here. And uh, we are a secular network. Um, I personally am Christian, uh, and I have found uh, a lot of um, just uh, hope and joy in being a practicing Christian in my life. And for me, it's, it's really about redemption uh, and to know that it uh, doesn't matter where you're coming from, like whether it's your own choices or choices that people put upon you, uh, there's always a path forward for redemption. And so I, I really love those themes to go and, uh, you know, think about and meditate in the morning on these themes and then on Sunday go to church and be around other people who are also thinking about these these very big ideas of redemption, grace, uh, unconditional love. Um, I was baptized at St. Thomas Episcopal Church uh, here in New York. And uh, later on, well, part of, part of uh, my conversion was I, a friend of mine who works for uh, Michael Curry, who's the uh, presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, which, which means he's running, you know, the Episcopal Church. And he's the guy who did the royal wedding. He performed the royal wedding sermon. He gave the sermon um, last year. Um, the Archbishop of, of Canterbury did the actual um, ceremony itself, but he did the sermon that went viral. Um, he's African-American, and his sermon uh, was about the power of love and how it's just uh, the, the, the phrase that love is the way. And I had previously that summer, so almost a year before, gotten my hands from my friend who works for him on one of Michael Curry's books called Crazy Christians. Mm-hmm. And that was part of my conversion. I just, I, was, I fell in love with what he was saying. And I just said, I, I want to be a crazy Christian. This guy's amazing. <laughs> so I would recommend that book to any of your listeners. Okay, crazy I haven't Christians heard of that. By, yeah. uh, by Michael Curry. I'd love to read that. That sounds really good. Um, now, talking about Bold, I want to talk a little bit more about it. You, now, it takes a lot of uh, motivation, proactivity, big vision to create something like this. I remember when you first got in touch with me about it. How, how long has it been? Like five, four years? Uh, we're a little over three years. So okay, three years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, about three and a quarter. So yeah, I remember first getting an email from you about this new network that you were starting and it just sounded like such a big undertaking. And I just wonder, um, how did you decide that bold was what you wanted to do, that this was something that was missing from the market and how are you able to gather the funding, the interest, and the participants to actually get it off the ground? Yeah. So uh, I don't know if you've heard of the phrase, a BHAG, what's your BHAG? Mm-hmm. But uh, a friend of mine, it's, it's, it's a book that's, um, or I guess a concept that's floating out there. So your BHAG is your big, hairy, audacious goal. Ooh, I, that's like your BHAG. I like yeah. it. I like it. So bold is my BHAG. 
And, um, and it's definitely, uh, so in startup world, so around the time I had the idea for Bold, uh, I was spending a lot of time with people in the, the startup community. I had attended TechCrunch. Uh, if, if any of your listeners are interested in learning more about entrepreneurship, uh, as someone who is coming more from the policy realm, where I like to think about it, where I was really arguing to defend free markets. And then to take the plunge and to actually participate in the free market, that's a different ball of wax. It's more experiential. It's more hands-on. And uh, it's challenging in new dimensions because when I was in on Wall Street, I was, I was working in the area of public finance, which was still relevant to the public sector. But I really wasn't using the street smarts. I, I hadn't really developed. I was a very sheltered, uh, poor Mormon kid. I didn't have street smarts. <laughs> and not to say that I've got, you know, I feel you. I don't have street smarts, <laughs> but, uh, but I think to be an entrepreneur, you've really got to, um, like, I think it's no, no, no secret or no surprise that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg dropped out of Harvard cause he didn't need to learn this. He couldn't learn these things in a college classroom. <laughs> you just have to learn by, um, uh, by practice. Right. Experience. Um, so it's, uh, and that's something that I only learned, um, over time, but at, at the time leading up to it, um, I thought that there would be like, there, there are very standard methodologies for doing a startup there. You know, you could go the traditional VC route where you get maybe a seed round or an angel round. You get your series A, series B, maybe you that uh, bridge round, maybe then series D or however you, however, there is in many cases a very textbook methodology to do a startup. Um, in my case, none of that applies. Yeah. <laughs> um, because media is, is such a difficult sector to begin with. Um, and even some of the, the companies who have taken that more traditional route, uh, like Mike.com, um, have really struggled, even though they had enormous funding from yeah, traditional Mike, venture did they, capitalists. Did they disappear? So they sold at a substantial loss, and they were mm. purchased by another media company. They, they they had raised sixty million dollars, and they sold for five million. Wow. So substantial wow. loss, and they were purchased by Bustle Digital Group. Okay. And the founder of Bustle um, is a successful entrepreneur who um, he. I like him a lot. His name is Brian Goldberg. He's a, I would describe him as a libertarian and he is a free thinker. So, and you guys uh, do a lot with bustle. Yeah, we've done a lot of programming and, uh, we love having their, their staff on our show. And, uh, we also have their political writers on for bipartisan dialogue. And, uh, yeah, so we love working with bustle, but I guess I'm taking a circuitous route to answer your question, but, um, <laughs> At the time, before I had the idea to start Bold, I was just spending a lot of time in this, the entrepreneur community, and I started to read Zero to One by Peter Thiel, and that's another book I would recommend to yeah. readers who are interested in understanding startups, but the whole concept of Zero to One is that you really want to, in some respects, create a, a natural monopoly. You want to be so dominantly better than everybody else. That's what Google did by overshadowing Yahoo as a search engine. They were 10x times better than the Yahoo search engine. Same way like Facebook. Facebook was 10x times better than MySpace. Um, so it's it's understanding what makes you different. And that makes you a zero and a one because that means you are completely different. You're starting from scratch and you're doing things in a whole new innovative way. 
Um, whereas most startups tend to be one to many is how he describes it. So most, most companies, uh, are operating in the one to many space where they're trying to copycat somebody else instead of doing zero to one, which is entirely new. That's what you did with bold. That's how I thought about it. And, and another concept or phrase um, to explain how I was thinking about it was this concept of a blue ocean versus a red ocean. Yes, I've read so, that book, Blue Ocean Strategy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the concept of a blue ocean is that is somewhere that is uncharted and it's open waters, it's blue. And that's really you want to, where you want to go as a startup versus red water, which is very bloody. And that's where the sharks are all fighting each other. And <laughs> a lot of uh, conservative or liberal media companies, I would say, are really just operating in the red shark area. And that's honestly part of what made Fox News so successful was because they were blue ocean, because so many of these establishment media companies were so liberal. Mm -hmm. And Fox provided a, a blue ocean strategy, and they created something new, and they just gobbled up the market share. Yeah, definitely. So tell tell me about a bit more about Bold. So what is your, I guess, mission? Do you have, if you have a mission statement, um, and what is your goal in, you know, in, in functioning? Yeah. So our, our vision, if you will, or I guess our mission statement, our purpose, um, is that we exist because we want to build the beloved community that Martin Luther King spoke about. Um, so the concept of beloved community, we believe that exists here and now, and it's our responsibility to build that every day. Um, and so Martin Luther King's mission was about reconciling uh, Americans around issues of race. Uh, not something certainly that uh, we grapple a lot with in our programming. Um, and I think also beloved community extends, uh, you know, no matter what dimension you're coming from, whether it's reconciling around uh, gender or race or uh, income levels or geography, it's whatever whatever divides that are existing uh, in our society that are tearing people apart. We really want to uh, really be antibiotics where we're bringing people together. Do we do it perfectly? No, <laughs> but uh, we've had a lot of uh, great success along the way. Um, we we our mission is to create content that uh, informs and empowers people. Um, and we, we want to reach billions right now we're reaching millions and we want to grow and reach billions. Um, and we're really re relentless in pursuing truth and breaking news to enlighten our audience. That's in a nutshell, what bold exists for. And your primary medium is, is it Facebook video or video in general? Yeah. So we're, uh, we're a TV network. So our social media handles are bold TV on Facebook and on Instagram and Twitter. Um, so we think that there's just a lot of power in the visual medium and also in the power of conversation in person, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, the power of television as a medium versus print. My, my undergrad degree is actually in print journalism. And so for me, I had to, as they say, disrupt, disrupt myself. I had to yeah. disrupt myself and learn, uh, video skills. Um, because even if you look from a, just a, a sheer revenue model standpoint, um, TV revenue is much higher than print revenue because yeah. as they say, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. And I think our president understands that that's why he was so powerful. Um, and I think that, uh, as far as the fact that we're digitally native, 
um, versus cable or traditional linear television uh, is part of what sets us apart in terms of our blue ocean and the type of content that we have in a digital play um, is that we're using technology as a tool to harness um, the power of the, the social good that technology can do. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, technology or whatever, you know, medicines and th- things can be abused, but it's just a tool at the end of the day. Technology is neutral. Uh, it's how you use the tool. And so we believe uh, in the power of using technology as a force for social good to bridge social divides. And so have you guys partnered with or is Bold TV available, say, on any kind of on-demand networks? Or, you know, there are so many of those networks out there now. I just wondered if you guys were connected with any of those yet. Uh, We are in talks with uh, many of these platforms. Um, We do work often with Twitter News, Mm -hmm. um, which curates the Twitter moments. And so we're able to get our moments, our video interviews to go viral on Twitter because of our relationship with the Twitter news team. Uh, And that helps us, I like to say, uh, punch above our our weight. So Mm -hmm. as a smaller startup, we're able to compete on Twitter um, thanks to our relationship with the Twitter news team because they they see the high quality content that we've put out consistently um, over the years. And so we're a trusted news source. Well, and I love how you guys do talk about some of these controversial issues. You mentioned race being one of those things that you talk about, which is a really hard thing to talk about sometimes, especially right now. It's it's always obviously very hot button, a lot of um, high emotion depending on, you know, the specific issue. Have you been able to see fruitful conversations um, that kind of go beyond what we normally see on Twitter, you know, where people are yelling and offending each other on purpose. Um, What would you say about those civil dialogues that you've been able to create through Bold? Yeah. So one phrase that I've, I've uh, used as a mental model for myself is that the current existing cable model, I would argue is really built around profiting off of conflict and we are really looking to profit off of collaboration where we're coming together and building bridges. That phrase profit off of collaboration. That's awesome. Yeah. And I I think that that ethos really fits also with the millennial generation as well. um, One of collaboration. And the thing is, I'm not, I'm not for um, having to water down your voice or water down your worldview in any way at all. Um, we've had some very strong vocal, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter supporters on the left and some very strong, uh, you know, Trump supporters, African-American and other races on the right, uh, including Diamond and Silk, who have been repeat guests. Um, and uh, we had five five reporters credentialed to cover the Young Black Leadership Summit down at the White House um, with Turning Point USA. Uh, and one of our reporters was picked up and got to go on MSNBC and talk about her experience. And so it's just been, uh, you know, we also last year had on one of the family members who his wife was shot in the Charleston shooting where the nine worshipers at the, Char- the Charleston AME church uh, were gunned down by a white supremacist and to have him come on and speak about how he was able to forgive the murderer. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was when, when president Obama broke into song, the song amazing grace at the funeral for those nine murdered African Americans. He did that after he spoke about how these family members were able to forgive him because that's what happened in the very moment, the very first time that 
the murderer who shot uh, these people who are worshiping and doing Bible study, um, his very first court appearance, the family members, not all of them, but some of them, uh, they were given a chance to speak to directly to the alleged murderer. Uh, he was convicted, but uh, at the time, the alleged murderer. And they forgave him in their public statements. And um, they, they urged him to turn his life around. And uh, so we had one of the family members, like you said, the husband of one of the murder victims on the show. And, he, and he's a pastor and he's uh, about to publish a book on the miracle of forgiveness. Uh, and so to have him in the conversation with us at Bold, because this white supremacist had done the shooting in part because he reportedly wanted to spark a race riot in the United States. And he thought by, by committing this vile act that it would help motivate. Um, and obviously, uh, it didn't work. And there was a documentary about the film, which is how I met the pastor. But in the documentary, they said, this guy was trying to spark a race, riot, But he went to the wrong place. He went to church. And mm. instead of a race riot in Charleston, it sparked uh, a conversation about love and reconciliation. And it really created a chain reaction of love, which is exactly what our country needs. That's so good. I yeah, I remember that. I remember when those family members did that. And it was so moving because uh, that's just so good when you say you know, he came to the wrong place. He came to church. That's not the place to do it. Um, that's so great that you're able to get someone like that on there. And I think that speaks to the power of what you're doing, because even when you talk about a place like Fox News, for example, or MSNBC, a lot of people don't want to go on those channels if they are not of one particular political ideology. Like if you are a liberal Democrat, you probably don't want to go share your story on Fox News and vice versa because you feel like you might be attacked. And so I think that kind of says and shows how much we need a place like Bold where people feel safe to go in and <clears throat> know that they're going to be respected and heard and maybe there'll be another point of view expressed, of course, but we need more of these spaces where talking is allowed and nobody's going to be um, like dehumanized for what they believe, no matter what that is. So I do think and see how important what you're doing is. Um, now, oh, I was going to ask you, do you have any like favorite segments that you've ever done or what are some of your favorite parts of your job at Bold? Yeah, no, it's, um, I, yeah, there are lots of favorites. I think that interview, um, with that family member, Pastor Anthony Thompson, that's high on the list, um, because to interview him and to see how he forgave immediately and to know that, you know, this was something so horrific, the, the, the person you love the most in the, in the world to be the mother of your children, to be brutally murdered and to, to have him forgiven that way. Uh, it really was inspiring to know it doesn't matter what has been done to you that you can forgive. Um, so that was very uh, moving for me. I also really uh, enjoyed my interview that I had with um, Bishop Michael Curry, who I had mentioned, because he came on bold and we had a, a debate, if you will, about immigration policy, because he's been very vocal against President Trump on immigration um, but the fact that he was willing to come on bold and submit himself to a conversation where he was challenged uh, really sp spoke a lot to me. Uh, and I was really grateful that he was able to do that. Um, we've, you know, interview a lot with members uh, of Congress in the House and Senate. Um, I, you know, we love having them on and 
And I've, I've seen different members who are from one side or the other and to have them be challenged by someone from the other side. I, I think the process uh, is important. And um, it's always nice to see that when they've been challenged, but they've been challenged in a respectful way, they respond well and they, they know um, they want to come back. So um, the, uh, the interview that we had with the father of the first Columbine victim was moving for me. Um, so her, uh, her, her name, there's a nonprofit that's named after her. Uh, her name was Rachel Scott yes, and I remember Rachel, her. um, you know, was gunned down by the Columbine murder, the very first victim. She was sitting out on the grass for lunch and or a break or something and, uh, was, was br- brutally murdered. And so her father, who had been a pastor, created a nonprofit in her honor called Rachel's Challenge. And so to have him come on and talk about this nonprofit that has taken this evil act and turned it into something where there is redemption and also prevention of violence. So through this program called Rachel's Challenge, what they do is they they go into schools and they teach uh, empathy and respect and anti-bullying and really to learn to communicate with each other. And they said that based on school report or uh, media reports, they've prevented, I believe, at least seven school shootings uh, and multiple suicides every year um, because people see this curriculum and their lives are touched and they've touched millions of children's lives through this curriculum. Wow. That's really, really powerful. I mean, to think about stopping seven school shootings, that's amazing. Well, I know, Carrie, that you were one of the first people I met as a young journalist myself in Washington, D.C. I don't know if you remember, but you had come to speak at the National Journalism Center, and I actually saw you were just there recently again speaking with interns. Uh, So that's pretty cool that you are able to be there as sort of a mentor. What kind of advice would you give to young people just breaking into the news business or the journalism space? Well, I like to uh, point out that I'm actually an NJC dropout. (laughs) but it was, it was in the best of ways because I had come as an intern for the National Journalism Center. And midway through my internship, I was able to get my full-time job at the Hill newspaper. Uh, I was, and they were incredibly gracious and supportive when they said, you moved here to get a job, not to be a permanent intern. So right. you take that job. That's pretty cool. Uh, but NGC to me, it's is a awesome. of how it worked. Yeah, NGC it, is awesome. Yeah, and as far as advice, I mean, I think... Well, I, I have to be on brand and say be bold, obviously. <laughs> obviously. Um, but my my internship for NJC uh, was for Robert Novak, mm-hmm. who was the legendary columnist for the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and the Associated Press before that, uh, and also CNN commentator and Fox commentator. Um, and just he had been in the business for more than 50 years. And he told me, I asked him for advice for the last day, and he said that you have to be wily. He said, like, wild E. Coyote, hmm. you got to be wily. That's what he told me. <laughs> um, and uh, I think also the really sticking to your why. Why am I doing this? What's my why? You have to just remind yourself every day what's your why. Because it is, uh, no matter what type of journalism you go into, it's going to be challenging, but in particular, political journalism. I'm sure you know, Erica, how how many personal attacks um, that you're going to endure uh, and how much venom you're going to get online or in person. Uh, so really just sticking to your why. And also I had uh, a colleague once tell me when I was a cover reporter uh, to remember who you're fighting for, just that you are there 
uh, as a journalist because there is First Amendment right for you to be there and you are representing millions of people. So don't forget, you know, your shoes are there and your these shoes represent millions of people who are, who are you're standing in their place. Um, and so to know that you have power as, as a young person, um, don't forget that power. Don't give up that power. Don't be ashamed of it. Uh, I think that those are all things to keep in mind. And who would you say is someone you admire that is either working in politics, policy, or media? Is there anyone that you look up to as a role model or, you know, someone that you've kept in the back of your mind all these years that has been inspiring to you? Oh, there are lots of people. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of Nikki Haley. Um, I think she's just got this, uh, you know, incredible class um, and just un, unabashed, unspoke, you know, unafraid to speak out. Um, and as a conservative, I just, you know, she's, she's a woman that I aspire to be like, um, there are just so many, I, I think Ivanka Trump is very admirable. I, I respect, um, all that she's doing to help women and, uh, you know, people of color and just advance, uh, opportunities for vulnerable people in not only in the U S but around the world. I think she's very inspiring. Um, did you say women only or just in general? I didn't, but, you know, I like these answers a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, I really like, uh, I really respect also Senator Tim Scott. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's someone that, uh, I, I, I hope he'll run for president 2024. Yes. Uh, and then we'll have I president like Scott. I would wholeheartedly. Scott, that. Scott Haley or Haley Scott? Either one. I, yeah. I, yeah. Do I like men ice cream or do I like, <laughs> like, chocolate. I mean, I love, I can't choose. (laughs) Yeah. That would be an amazing ticket. Oh my gosh. Now I'm going to get excited about it. (laughs) Uh, what is a daily habit in your life that keeps you on track? Yeah. So I think, uh, definitely my morning routine is, uh, super important for me to have uh, a sense of stability, uh, because over the course of the day, things get crazy. And so to have a routine in the morning, uh, and that is where I, you know, wake up, I meditate, I read the Bible, I pray, uh, having that as my anchor in the morning really helps set the tone for me. Uh, and so I would say that that's, um, something that I really strive to. And I think also with the startup, it's been so chaotic and so many hours of labor that, uh, to make sure that I take the time to exercise, um, it's not a luxury. I think I've learned that over time that it's not a nice to have to exercise is really a must have, uh, in order to keep balanced. Do you have any books, podcasts, or TV shows that you've been watching lately or read, heard that you would want to recommend? Ah, there's so many. <laughs> also, I am reading multiple books at any one given moment, but one book that recently really, uh, sharpened my thinking was the book mastery by Robert Greene. Mm-hmm. And that book is really helpful for understanding the incubation period, because I think a lot of, again, to your question on young people, a lot of young people get frustrated. I know I was when I was younger. Uh, I, I'm a grandma millennial, so I'm, you know, <laughs> on the older end of the spectrum, but I know when I was a younger millennial, um, I would get frustrated, uh, because things weren't turning out exactly how I wanted them on my timeline. And so this book, Mastery by Robert Greene, is really showing how uh, what he does is he profiles these amazing outliers in human history, not people who are just 
high performing or even uh, excellent. It's he's looking for people who are exceptional mm. and how they change the arc of history or just how they are, you know, absolutely at the top of their game and they, they're groundbreaking pioneers and what makes them uh, unique, but also what do they have in common? One of the common threads that he finds in his profiles is that there is this period of incubation and it usually takes 10 to 15 years. And it's similar to this concept of 10,000 hours where it takes at least 10,000 hours to truly have mastery uh, in your discipline. And a lot of people start at a very young age, like Mozart started when he was incredibly young, maybe like two or three, so that by the time he was a young adult, he he still had had that incubation period, but it just started much younger. Um, and so he was able to do things at, you know, in his late teens and early twenties, because by that point he'd solidified this incubation period. So for me as a journalist who began full time, uh, in 2005 to know there was an incubation period and then also to be an entrepreneur, I've only been an entrepreneur for three years. <laughs> yeah. There's, it's all overlapping the incubation period. Um, so just to have patience. So that book helped, uh, teaching me patience, I would say. Um, in terms of other other things to recommend, there are just so many. Um, Do you have any favorite I'm, podcasts? I love to ask that question. Oh well, except for you. Aside from yours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, yes. Uh, no, um, I like. Um, there's a. It's called this. The Secrets of Wealthy Women mm. uh, by Veronica Dagger at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, she profiles successful women and. Uh, doesn't reason with them and, and delves into how, how they did it. Uh, another one is Bobby Rebel. She has a podcast. It's called The Financial Grown-Up. And this one is very useful for people who are going through financial tr- trouble, struggles or even just how to think about your financial future. And she, she tailors it especially, uh, especially for millennials. Um, and I really recommend that too because she's, she's able to get a lot of very successful people and they, they, they spill the beans. She, she asks them, she doesn't hold back. She asks them what, what was, she calls it your financial grown up moment. And so some of these revelations of when was the moment that you grew up financially, some of them are, are pretty uh, revealing. Oh, that's interesting. I'm going to have to add that to my list. Okay. Last question. If you could have dinner or drinks with anybody could be celebrity, could not be, uh, who would it be and why? Well, obviously, Jesus. <laughs> Does it have to be alive or not alive? No, it can be can be dead. Well, Jesus is alive yeah. technically, but yeah. So obviously, that's my number one. But if so someone who is a human on Earth right now in his flesh only, <laughs> <laughs> um, dinner with President Trump because uh, there's a lot that I would love to talk to him about. Anything in particular? <laughs> what would be the first thing? <laughs> <laughs> so much well i would love to talk to him uh about uh reaching non-traditional conservatives and yeah. how we can uh, expand the the pie and expand the uh the the appeal rhetorically um among women and minorities i know that in 2018 it was suburban women uh in large respects that were key to some key house races being flipped um to the left and so uh, to talk with him uh, about my ideas and what I've learned uh, these last several years uh, with Bold, and uh, I'd love to talk to him about that. And then also just I think that the Ronald Reagan style of communication where he, he grew his margin, he grew his state to the point where 
Um, he lost by only one state. He won 49 out of 50 states in his second run for the presidency. Wow. I don't see why President Trump couldn't do that um, through really, I think his roadmap uh, was was the speech that he gave at the State of the Union this year. Incredibly positive. Hmm. And incredibly, I think, as conservatives, sometimes we're really good about seeing what we're against. Uh, and we can go on offense and really say, what are we for? And I think that's what Ronald Reagan was the master at. Yeah, I love that. That's such a good point about, yeah, saying what you're for rather than what you're against. I feel like that's always going to be a winner. <laughs> All right, Carrie, yeah. well... Thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule. I am going to make sure that everybody knows where they can find Bold. And um, we'll look forward to the next segment that IWF participates in, of course. And, of course, um, I was thankful that you guys had me on earlier this year when I released my book. So thank you so much for that. Yeah, absolutely. No, very inspiring. And I hope they're selling like hotcakes. (laughs) Well, could be better, but, you know. (laughs) You do what you can. Um, All right, Carrie, I hope that I get to see you sometime in person soon. All right. Thanks, Erica. Take care. Bye. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining this conversation with Carrie and I. If you're enjoying the podcast, I urge you to please head over to iTunes, open up that rating and reviews section. Give me a five-star rating and a one-sentence review. I appreciate it so much. I hope that you took a lot from Carrie's words of wisdom and that you will check out Bold on Facebook. They're going live constantly. And even I have made an appearance there. So anyway, check it out. We'll see you next Tuesday on Worth Your Time. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.